Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. In this episode, I speak to Brianne Kimmel about how to launch an operator-led fund. In September 2019, TechCrunch broke the news of Work Life Ventures, her $5 million seed fund for debut enterprise SaaS. Prior to launching the fund, she was an active angel investor, sourcing deals from her community, SaaS School. And she led go-to-market strategy at Zendesk, where she built the Zendesk for Startups program. In this episode, she discusses transitioning from angel investor and operator to managing a fund as a solo general partner. We also discuss the rise of no code and remote work. A lot of gems in here. Enjoy. Building good products takes a long time. Everyone knows that. A lot of time goes into troubleshooting your apps pre and post deployment. Now, with Headspin, the world's first connected intelligence platform, dev teams, QA, and product teams can save countless hours with unified testing, monitoring, and analytics across applications, devices, and networks. Headspin accelerates time to market and optimizes the performance and functionality of your digital experiences enabled by mobile, web, IoT, and 5G technologies. Learn more at www.headspin.io. Brianne, thanks so much for being on the show today. I remember meeting you for the first time at one of our product hunt meetups in San Francisco. This is a few years back. And since then, you have gone on to do so many exciting things, the most recent of which is launching your own fund, Work Life Ventures. So I thought it'd be really fun to just start off by telling listeners a bit about how Work Life Ventures came to be. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, I very much remember uh, when I was building Zendesk for startups, we sponsored one of the Product Hunt annual meetups. So it was great to have you in San Francisco. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I have haven't been a longtime fan of the show, so I'm excited to be here. Amazing. Thank you. So from building up Zendesk for startups to launching your own fund that's focused on enterprise SaaS seems like a perfect fit. How did you sort of bridge that transition from working full-time in the tech world to working full-time as a VC? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the transition from angel investor and operator to full-time general partner has been a really exciting one, to be honest. I think that um, I underestimated how much work I was doing on evenings and weekends. So while I was operating full-time at Zendesk, um, I was essentially catching up with startups on every lunch break, after work, on weekends, um, and really just wholeheartedly enjoyed spending time with productivity tools, you know, bottom-up enterprise companies, and just saw this trend where, you know, you see companies like Zoom and Slack and, uh, you know, other more self-serve workplace products that grow virally doing really well. I mean, you know, growing to the point that they, um, they IPO and they do really well in both the private and public markets. And, you know, I saw over time as I was spending time with entrepreneurs, it was super interesting to see that, you know, both my background at Zendesk um, focused on self-serve product and, you know, the more sort of consumer applications at work and building Zendesk for startups was actually um, a really interesting inflection point for me where I realized that, you know, in, in offering early stage companies free Zendesk and in spending more time in the community, you know, the next logical thing was to start writing small checks. 
Um, so I had uh, I'd been an angel investor in Webflow, um, which is a, a low code way for people to build and launch their own websites. And there had been a few companies where you know as they started trending well, and as I was spending more time with early stage companies, you know I, I got increasingly excited about you know what it would look like to build a very SaaS focused fund to do basically what I was doing on emails in weekends full time. That's so cool. I love that. Um, I've noticed a trend certainly with lots of the other investors that we've spoken to on the show that many of them start really just out of like their own passion for supporting like entrepreneurs they're really interested in or ideas they find really novel. You know, they start by writing a few small checks as an angel. And then after a while, they're like, there are so many more people I want to support. <laughs> I want to, I want to build a fund and I want to find a way to do this. You talked a lot about how your time, you know, working at Zendesk and connecting with the startup community in that role gave you more insight into the tools that startups needed and the things that they were interested in. Is that how you started to get more and more interested in no-code tools that sort of led you to invest in Webflow? Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think it was uh, it was interesting to see. Um, Webflow was something I actually discovered at Zendesk. So our um, design team started using it to build landing pages. Um, I also started seeing it, you know, out in the wild as, um, you know, other friends who were starting companies and other makers that I knew were using Webflow to um, launch their products. Um, I'm actually involved with a nonprofit called News Story, and they are the first to provide fully 3D printed homes. Um, and they're doing this in emerging markets in Mexico and Latin America and, and now even globally. And it was interesting to see just how easy it was for them to launch their first website and to really, you know, go to market with uh, a no-code tool like Webflow, um, which helped them you know, raised from some really prolific angel investors like Alexis Ohanian, uh, the founder of Reddit, and Jen Rubio, the founder of Away. And uh, it's been interesting to see just how much a lot of these no-code tools are really helping anyone uh, build and launch their own companies. So I think what's really interesting and what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, only 0.5% of the world can code. So for that 99.5% of us, um, code is actually a real barrier. It's this challenge where, you know, to actually uh, find and hire and uh, work directly with an engineer is uh, very hard, even in the Bay Area. You know, there's no shortage of engineers in the Bay Area, but uh, it still feels like talent is very scarce. And, you know, I think engineers are such an important resource, but there just aren't that many of them. So in having all of these no-code solutions, like we've really created this environment where essentially anyone can build anything. So anything from a website to a mobile app, or most recently I've made a number of investments in companies that do no-code versions of internal tools. So essentially anything that you would need to build, uh, whether it's a database or whether it's um, you know anything related to um, internal tools, like such as enterprise features, we're really starting to see this whole, um, basically anything that is uh, challenging and time-consuming for an engineer to build, we're actually solving it with no code or low code, such as like a single line of code. So it's much easier to build and ship any sort of products or features. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing more about that. We actually had Mike Vernal of Sequoia uh, on the show a few months back, and he 
talked about what he's most excited about in the future of tech, and he touched on no code too. And similar data points that you've just shared with us, you know, the fact that it's a minority of people in the world who can code and having code being an essential part of developing your product or building your product can actually uh, create such a barrier to you doing that. And I think you've shared some incredible examples there of folks who are creating no code versions of products or are building on existing products with no code and low code alternatives. And I just wondered if there are any makers who are listening and still feel like they are waiting to find that perfect technical co-founder, you know, to build an MVP, what advice would you give them? Because it feels like there are a lot of ways that folks can actually, you know, test a hypothesis or, or even go to market like news story without necessarily needing to create something that's built by an engineer. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think it depends on how much of the business model is reliant on a certain type of technology. Like I do spend a lot of time with, you know, developer tools and folks that are building some some real um, where tech is actually a core competitive advantage and it's something that they need to invest in. I think in those scenarios, there are plenty of communities and um, Slack channels and, and, and a lot of places where you can actually find and uh, pitch your work to other developers. So um, I was an early angel investor in a uh, professional network called Dev.2, um, which started out as a blog called The Practical Dev. So I think this is a great example where, you know, the things that you're doing on evenings and weekends, you know, if you're blogging about tips for software engineers, like that can actually scale into a real um, venture scale business. So they recently raised a Series A and they've gone on to do really great work, but it started out as a blog. So um, you have Ben Halper and the CEO, you know, he's based in Brooklyn and he has done a lot of writing on evenings and weekends. You know, over time, he started to attract more of an audience and, and really build more of a fan base. And today, you know, this is, there's this amazing um, platform where whether you're technical or non-technical, I think the title is uh, a little bit irrelevant. You know, there are people that are just technical enough where they have a real vision for what they want to build. And oftentimes, like you have the vision, maybe you actually can code. It's just that you don't really have the time and you want to focus on fundraising and building the core, other core components of the business. So using a a professional network like Dev.2 is a great chance for you to actually find, uh, interact and kind of uh, pitch your work to other engineers. Um, There's also another one that I love as well. It's called Moonlight. And the vision of Moonlight is actually there's a large percentage of um, engineers that feel a little bit underutilized, um, especially if if they're at medium to large size companies where, you know, it's super interesting to see that um, there are a lot of engineers that simply love coding and they love working on very specific challenges. So they'll use Moonlight as a way to find extra projects and pick up extra side work. And, you know, many of them are actually working full time at some of the world's best tech companies. Um, they're just looking for a little bit of extra cash or they kind of want to solve a specific problem or they also use that as a way to really vet other co-founders as well. So it's great to see, I think, right now, like as work becomes more fluid, um, the question is not, can you find enough work? There's always enough work to go around. The question is, like, can you actually find the right problems that you want to work on? And can you, you know, use these moonlight sort of projects to actually build a great portfolio and potentially work on the things that you want to do long term? Um, I recently read that 94% of hiring managers are looking for a very specific 
project-based experience when making a hire. So I think there's a lot of people where if you can pick up areas of interest, if you can start to develop your skills on evenings and weekends, then essentially you can open the door to whatever future role you want to have. So I think work is just increasingly fluid and and they're, they're, you're not tied to a major, you're not tied to a specific job title or what you're working on during the day. You can actually find these great freelance and side projects which can, which can actually open doors for the future as well. Yes, I think that's really, really great advice, especially that idea of like finding projects that you're passionate about to work on, because as you said, it creates that demonstrable evidence of your skills that you can share with hiring managers. But it also, like you said, helps you just expand your community and like collaborate with folks that you wouldn't otherwise have had the chance to. The dev community is great. We've actually had Ben on the show before. It's incredible to see how much they're growing and expanding. I was really excited to see that they acquired Code Newbie, which is another awesome community and great podcast I'm a fan of. And I'll definitely check out Moonlight. That sounds amazing. One of the things that I thought of as you were speaking just then was how big a role community plays in the work that you do, you know, from when you were at Zendesk working directly with the startups community to just participating in communities outside of that, that you then started, you know, being an angel investor in like a bunch of different communities. I just wondered like, from online communities to offline communities, how do you stay connected to so many different groups of people? And how do you sort of seek out and discover communities, you know, like Moonlight that you suddenly have like a real affinity for? I feel that often when we're just browsing through social media or looking up events, it can actually be quite overwhelming to understand which ones might be the ones that align most with our values, what we're interested in. So I'd just be curious to hear on a personal level, how you've sort of like navigated all the different startup communities that you've participated in over the years. Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I uh, was recently having a conversation with my good friend, Marty Bell. Um, He runs an online community called poolside.fm. And the whole vision for Poolside is basically like laid back, like kind of like jazzy, cool beats. And just the number of people that we've met through Poolside, and he runs this Slack channel called Jacuzzi Club. And, uh, you know, it's kind of one of these things where I think that like-minded people will always find each other. And I think the internet is a beautiful place where if you build a community and you are very specific with, you know, the goals of the community, you, you start to kind of wrap a real, like, brand and ethos around it, like, the right people will find you over time. And so I would say that, you know, even from a young age, like, you know, I was an internet kid growing up and uh, you just you just meet really interesting people online. So I am finding that, um, you know, especially in, uh, you know, even very tech ish and tech concentrated cities like San Francisco, which is where I currently live, you know, having both online and offline communities is incredibly important. Like I feel like there, while there are no shortage of tech events in San Francisco, I think that oftentimes, you know, what is missing is a real space to be authentic and to really ask like very meaningful questions. So I actually myself, I, uh, I run a community um, that I call SAS School. Um, it's essentially a self-funded, uh, community-led go-to-market bootcamp that I do once a quarter. And the whole vision there was to basically democratize all this information that um, I was very fortunate to receive while I was at Zendesk. So I remember there was a collective of us that were all serving as like head of growth, self-serve products, uh, revenue-minded uh, PMs. 
at Airtable and Dropbox and Drift and and Slack and SurveyMonkey. And there was a whole collective of us that would get together once a month and do working sessions. And we would kind of create our own presentations and really walk through our growth experiments with uh, other heads of growth. And uh, that initial uh, group was led by a guy named Guillaume Cobain, uh, who's now one of my close friends, uh, now an investor in my fund as well. And, you know, he was previously the head of growth at Segment. um, And then he uh, went over to Drift and now he's consulting full time. But, you know, there was this great collective of us where we were all very like-minded in the fact that we were working on the same types of experiments at different companies. Um, We were also very open and, you know, wanted to learn from each other. Um, So I end up uh, kind of productizing that and turning it into this thing for early stage companies I call SaaS school. But the the whole vision is to basically have, you know, in-person events where people can get to know each other. And I think that's oftentimes where trust is really built. But then online, like having a Slack channel and having more kind of smaller conversations where people can actually ask really authentic questions. And, you know, it's a trusted circle because it's all companies that are around the same size and same stage. So they're primarily seed and series A entrepreneurs. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing about that. Yes, I've, I've seen SaaS school activity online. And I think it's really great that you touched on the point that it can be difficult even amidst all of the options out there to find a space that speaks, you know, to a specific niche or to a specific core group or even like a challenge where people can truly come to that space and be honest about what they're working on, what challenges they're facing, or, you know, like a kind of space where no question is stupid and things like that. And I think what I'm taking away from that is not only that folks should actively seek those out, but also be willing to create those spaces when they don't exist. And if you maybe think back to when you first decided to launch SaaS School, is there anything about actually creating the community, putting on the offline events that you would do differently or something that now that they've been running for a while, you sort of look back on and might advise someone who's just starting to do something like that now advise them to look out for? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, this is something that Producton has done so incredibly well. And I think it's something that does translate really well offline is I think just creating a very um, safe space for people is really important. And I think that the way that you package and position events is is really important. And I think that, um, you know, I can very specifically tell the difference between sort of a community-led event versus a conference. And I think a conference is all about, you know, projecting power and talking about the things that you've done and presenting like the state of the industry. And I find that those sort of events are great and they, they can be a great way of meeting other people. But oftentimes when you meet other people, it's under the um, label of networking. And I think that over time, you know, people are a little bit tired of networking. It's like, oh, I have to put my name on this name tag and I have to be this like best version of myself and really come in very confident. But I think it actually ends up, you end up leaving feeling like you have, you know, know, business cards and superficial connections and you end up, you know, having something that doesn't feel truly authentic. And, and for a lot of us, I think especially if you identify as being a little bit more of an introvert, you kind of leave with like a really annoyed feeling where you're like, oh, I don't know if it's I'm an introvert or is it an imposter syndrome, but like I definitely didn't like that whole experience. And I think that's the real difference between having a community and hosting like a conference or a very formal event where I think it all comes down to the positioning. Like the one thing that I find, especially um, with something like SAS school is uh, when someone, um, I, I use Typeform to do this, but before any event, you know, I'll send around a Typeform link that asks a few questions. It'll ask, 
what would you like to learn at this event? Who would you like to see speak? Like, what are some things that are top of mind? And I think in asking these questions ahead of time, it gets people to open up. It also allows uh, myself and and the speakers to really get a sense for like, if we want to build a community and we want to address specific things that are top of mind, we have to ask people ahead of time. Like, we're not there to say this is how you should build your business, but rather we're there to ask how can we help you build your business? And I think that's two very important distinct distinctions. I love that. Yes. Thanks so much for sharing. I thought it might be fun to um, maybe like take a step back a bit and talk more about what you learned in the process of raising your fund. Um, Not necessarily like going into like the nitty kind of gritty details, but were there any like mindset shifts that you had to make when you were, you know, going through this process of like, okay, I'm I'm not just doing this in the evenings and weekends anymore on top of my full-time job. I'm going to be a full-time investor and I need to find my limited partners and I need to build a fund. Were there any um, mindset shifts that, that you took on or also were there any like new tools that you had to sort of like bring into your repertoire to successfully make that transition from full-time operator investing and advising on the side to full-time investor? Yeah, for sure. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of similar analogies to having a startup as well, because I remember when I started first taking my first few um, LP meetings, you know, it's basically like building your friends and family around. So you create the deck, you're very excited about it. You know, you start, um, essentially start with people who know you well and people who can give you really honest and direct feedback. So I remember, you know, part of the exercise was essentially just getting comfortable with the idea of raising outside money. So part of that was going to other co-investors in my network and being pretty thoughtful about like, if I truly want to build a modern enterprise fund, and if I really want to have a strong opinion on the sector in which I'm investing, um, I wanted to start with sector aligned CEOs. So I did that first by having, you know, great conversations with other co-investors and folks that have uh, worked directly with me. Uh, That next phase that was a little bit more challenging is where it starts to look more like pitching to, uh, you know, pitching to folks who are outside your network, which can be both scary on the fund side, but also for entrepreneurs as well. So I think it's been a very humbling experience. But it's one of these things where then you start to think about like, what is my actual process? And you have to run a really tight, tight pitch process where, you know, much like a founder who is getting ready to go out and raise, you know, a seed round, there's not a lot of metrics yet. So it's primarily vision, team, um, and positioning. So in a lot of ways, those conversations were very much send the deck ahead of, ahead of time, follow up immediately after, like getting really good with the cadence to which how, you, how you're responding to LPs. Um, and also just creating a really like actionable list of FAQs. So, you know, you have this really long running doc of these are questions that keep coming up consistently from other LPs. You know, I should start to weave some of that messaging um, into my pitch ahead of time. That way, you know, over time, the FAQs are getting smaller and smaller because the pitch is just getting um, incrementally better each time I give it. Um, and I think there's been a lot of uh, a lot of interesting insights as well, where I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, new folks and sort of non-traditional backgrounds who are breaking into venture, and many of which are solo GPs. So I'm part of this growing class of, of solo general partners. So I think in a lot of ways, just demonstrating how I run my fundraising process, 
you know, explaining to LPs exactly what the structure of my day looks like, just to give them confidence, both that I am a good steward of other people's money, but also I'm very responsible with my time. Because I think the biggest question right now, especially with a lot of solo GPs is like, how do you do it all? So I think this is a space where talking about the productivity tools that I'm using and talking about my workflows can be a real um, way to educate the market and also a way to really give LPs a sense of confidence that, you know, it is possible to deploy the fund and, and build a next gen firm with a very small team. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a growing trend, which is incredible. I also am, you know, really encouraged to see more folks who've been in the trenches of the startup world actually take on full-time investor roles because it just means that you can empathize with what your portfolio founders are going through, which I think is incredible. I think another thing that's really important for all investors to do, and I guess in particular, um, solo GPs like yourself is share that philosophy as much as you can, because it gives us such a sense of, you know, your vision and, and what you plan to do. And you are really great at creating content. You know, I read your newsletters, um, you know, you post on Instagram. I was just curious, like, how did you decide which channels you would focus on to share more of your thesis when it comes to investing and more of, you know, how you see the world and why you make the decisions that you do. You focus on on email and, and Instagram, like I said, but how did you make the decision to choose those channels? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think just kind of taking a step back, one of the interesting things when I was exploring, you know, do I start a comp- do I leave Zendesk and start a company? Do I join an existing firm and, you know, ideally focus on, you know, enterprise software and, and join that the enterprise team? Or thirdly, do I start my own fund? And I think one of the really interesting, you know, insights that I thought about over time is I actually went and interviewed managing directors of a number of, of you know, top tier funds. Uh, so I went to the Mark Andreessen's of the world and I went to folks who started out as angel investors and then chose to raise out the outside money and start their own fund. And one of the questions I had was, you know, how do you actually build a very enduring fund and how do you actually you know, think about the difference and sort of the risk reward payoff when it comes to being an angel versus having your own fund. And I found what's interesting is like, and this is something that I hope resonates with other people as well, is I think that there is a way of maintaining um, your status as an angel and just saying, you know, uh, this is the Brianne Kimmel Angel Fund. And, you know, when I invest in you, it's me and me alone. Um, I actually thought that, you know, the the greater opportunity was to really build a community and to really wrap a name and a brand around it. Um, so the whole vision of work life was to actually make it something much bigger than myself and to say that, you know, enterprise software for a really long time has been really underserved in terms of product design. Um, it's been historically really expensive and something that's been sold top down. And quite frankly, it hasn't really evolved as quickly as it should have. So I think you can see the delta between the tools we're using at work and like amazing technology that we're using on evenings and weekends, like TikTok or Cameo and like all of these great video experiences. And the problem is that we need really interesting and great consumer product builders to start working on workplace applications. And so it was a really exciting time where it's like I actually wanted to shift the focus and say rather than talking specifically about the tech itself, 
I'm going to call it work life. Like we're going to show pictures of people and not like these like interesting, like kind of quirky SAS illustrations that you see everywhere. But, you know, and everything that we do, um, we talk to people like they're real people. So we speak to the designers, the developers, the people who are, you know, in the office every day, you know, on the evenings and weekends, they're still playing around in Figma or they're launching their own podcast. And the whole goal is to make it a very people focused fund. So I felt in having a name and actually like wrapping a brand around it and, and, you know, building this community over time, that's much bigger than just maintaining that status of an angel and doing something that felt a little bit more self-serving. Like I'd much rather build the community and create something that feels like something that, you know, other people can identify with, especially those individual people that are working inside of tech companies. I love that. And it, it definitely makes it feel so much more relatable. You know, this idea that, yeah, why, why aren't SaaS tools, which we're all dependent on, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week in our jobs, <laughs> developing um, in as fun and engaging a way as the consumer products we interact with on our phones when we're back at home or, you know, taking our lunch breaks. And I think building a community around that makes so much sense because it's a space that impacts all of us, whether we are using these products as we go through our day to day or whether we're designing these products because that's our job. And I think having a dialogue around, you know, what does the ideal CRM tool look like, or what does, you know, a a fun, if it ever can be fun, database system or file management system look like, it, it requires a community to have those conversations, which is really exciting. And when it comes to how you think of the work life community, there's obviously yourself and the portfolio companies, What's your sort of like vision for the community when you just sort of expand that over the coming years? Yeah, I mean, the way that the community is currently evolving, in addition to SAS school, I'm also running a lot more what I would call door opening events. So because I have a very focused fund and it is very much unpacking, you know, new software and services for work, we can get pretty prescriptive on the types of events that we're hosting. So I try to do monthly CTO dinners. Um, I'll typically have uh, portfolio CTOs or just uh, friends of work life who will come to dinner. Um, I'll invite the CTO from Dropbox, head of product from Slack, Um, There's basically a great network of like very opinionated and uh, highly capable executives who have scaled inside of these high growth SaaS companies. And I think having that, having that flexibility and having that rich insight of people who've actually done it and have actually, you know, scaled these businesses, uh, you know, to IPO and beyond can be really helpful. And I think what's really great is, um, you know, I think that as the world becomes increasingly distributed, and I know, like, especially with the product hunt community, because everyone is, uh, you know, in all pockets of the world, the one thing that we're currently building is actually really investing in our online presence and our global community. So a part of that is that I recently just hired an engineer. So she was previously at Visco and then most recently at GitHub. So we're actually going to be building out an online platform. So on-demand video content, interviews with um, you know some of the leading um, execs from Airtable, Dropbox, all of these great companies where you know, when they, uh, when they work, they work incredibly well. And I think like really digging into what it takes to build a product for the workplace that grows virally and ones that have a great product experience. So I'm excited to both have in-person events for, for folks that are, lo- are local, but more importantly, I'm, I'm super excited to start to build out an online platform that can scale. 
that's so exciting. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to keeping it, keeping an eye on all these developments, which is great. One thing that I haven't had a chance to ask you about yet, and I'm conscious of time, is uh, remote work and the rise of remote work. So, you know, we're a fully distributed team <laughs> here at Product Hunt um, and Angelist, our parent company. Um, I thought it'd be great for you to give us your take on remote work. I know this is something you're really passionate about as well. And a lot of the companies that you've invested in support flexible working. So yeah, I would just love to hear your your take on that and how you see it evolving in the years to come. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's a really interesting point in sort of the life phase of remote work. Um, I think for a lot of folks, uh, especially those that are new to the workforce, our view of remote can be a little bit um, more skewed towards early stage, where I think we are starting to see more early stage companies that are going fully distributed uh, sooner than we've seen in, in, in other you know decades prior. And I think this comes down to a few things. I think that you know as the world is increasingly getting increasingly smaller, where you know people are traveling more, um, people are looking for more flexibility, and now we actually have the tools to be able to do that. Um, I'm very fortunate to have Eric Wan, the CEO of Zoom, as an investor in my fund. And I think like Zoom is the best example of a tool that adds a lot of value for folks that are working in a single office and just need to work from home just you know one day per week or as things come up. It also scales into the ability for people to work you know anywhere in the world. Uh, and have a, a great, you know, video experience that, you know, when Zoom first was getting started, you know, video conferencing that doesn't suck. Like that's an amazing tagline because it was really hard to technically deliver a great video call, you know, in previous, uh, in previous years. Um, the one thing that I will say is that I am seeing a shift where, you know, a lot of uh, medium to large size companies, you know, they've kind of always been a little bit more open to flexible work. And I think one interesting thing that a lot of the startups that I've invested in that started out as purely a, a remote tool, like there there aren't that many fully distributed companies, like you have GitLab, you have Envision, uh, you have GitHub. Um, but actually, it's really surprising to see um, these tools for remote work actually add a lot of value when you add your, um, you know, your second location. So you started with one single HQ and now you're expanding to an East Coast office or a West Coast office or, you know, you're planting uh, a flag in the ground in a new country. And I think those are inflection points in a company's history where it's like the more we can be very thoughtful around the tools and the documentation and the processes that we have, the more inclusive we can be from a culture standpoint. And I think a lot about culture, I think that this is something where, you know, as technology becomes easier to build and as we see a lot of these no-code tools that make it very easy to ship an MVP, um, I think that increasingly startups will compete on culture and culture alone. And having great tools and creating a very inclusive work environment is is one great way to do that. I really like that you pointed that out. Startups will compete on culture and culture alone. I'm already starting to see this. For example, a lot of very competent senior women engineers I know in my network who are always being courted by companies for great jobs. And a lot of them are basically passing up incredible offers because they don't like the culture of the company. Uh, I have another friend who has a very unique skill set within data science, similar sort of thing. Um, you know, he's always getting offers or at least trying to get headhunted by different companies, but he 
can be picky about the thing that matters most to him, which is culture. And if he doesn't feel the culture is inclusive or doesn't align with his values, he just doesn't even take the conversation. So um, I think you're absolutely right. And certainly remote companies have that advantage of being able to hire whoever they want, wherever they want. And ultimately, culture is the people that you hire, the people that you promote, and the people in leadership that make decisions. So I think what you said there is like, you know, so, so valuable. And I hope more folks see that connection too. Yeah, for sure. I also think like what's really interesting is as more people are working from home, and I think once we see even more fully distributed teams, like I think it does give individuals a lot more power and ownership over their career trajectory. So I think that the pros to that model is, you know, there are so many new forms of education and so many new technologies that you can use to improve your skill set. But I also think the uh, one, you know, one of the the downsides of, of the model is, you know, I do think a lot about finding, you know, a very like hyper local community where whether it's joining a co working space or will we see new sort of mastermind or you know in neighborhood sort of groups where you can get together and learn from each other. I think really finding the balance of what works best for you as a person and how do you feel like. You're both getting enough uh, education and learning from, you know, individuals in the workplace, but also being super thoughtful on like, are there other programs and services and things that for me independently, I should be working on as well. And I think there's just so much education out there, um, whether it's online or in person. And I highly encourage people to do that sort of thought exercise where it's like, what do I want to be doing 12, 24, you know, so many months from now? And how can I actually structure my day to which I'm learning the things that will get me to that next place? Yes, I love that advice. That's so helpful. So we're sort of coming to the end of the show. I could definitely keep you on for ages, but you've got plenty to do. So um, this is the part of the show where we just get to hear from you about the products that you're obsessed with right now. Maybe these are the apps that are always on your home screen. Maybe it's something physical that you've just bought. It never leaves your handbag. Something fun that you're using at home, a gift you've got for a friend, being product hunt. We just want to know about your favorite products right now. So please tell us. Yeah, it's awesome. So I've been spending a lot more time in design. I think that, um, you know, I when I was building work life, I was thinking through what does the logo look like, which I used Figma. Um, I started thinking through like, what are the filters and sort of the ways that I imagine like what I want the work life brand to look like. Um, I've been using Chroma Stories a lot. So that was a team that's uh, ex-Instagram, and they're now building a really interesting way to uh, create better Instagram stories. So in a lot of ways, it's it's sort of templates and new filters, but kind of thinking through like what are some uh, really easy ways to mock up uh, cool designs on your phone. So both of those have been great. It's so funny. I, I recently moved as well, so I've been uh, I've been spending a lot of time on like home IoT. So I recently got a Deep Sentinel. I also have a Canary. So I'm starting to t- play around with some of the new like cameras and you know in home IoT, which uh, has been really interesting because I've historically not been uh, the most tech savvy when it comes to my home. <laughs> Amazing. That's so cool. I'm actually just downloading Chroma Stories. Uh, on my app store now, because I've been using Unfold, but it's one of those things where, you know, you get into a really 
cool free app. And then after a few months, you're bombarded with ads all the time. And then you're like, okay, who else can do this a bit better? Um, So I'll definitely check them out. I love testing new messaging apps as well. I think one of the challenges is oftentimes I get really excited about a new app. And uh, the question is like, can I get my friends equally as excited? But there's a new new messaging app called Muse, M-U-Z-E. And I love it because it's basically like a real-time collage between you and your friends. So rather than just uh, texting, you can actually uh, cut and paste and, you know, kind of like scribble on top of the messages that you're sending to your friends. So I think there's a lot of new things that are happening in this like shift towards small communities where, you know, whether it's um, Muse where you can actually kind of creatively collage and like message in a different way. Or um, I really like this uh, group messaging app called Bunches. And Bunches is cool because essentially you can create these like little small communities. And ideally it's for influencers where it's like cool. You can like hop in a, in a shared space with you and your favorite influencer. But I also think it's cool just to kind of catch up with friends and like have a really small community where you can compare notes and like share things that you're thinking about. Amazing. I'll definitely have to check all of these out. Brian. thanks so much for your time and your recommendations. So for folks who are listening and they want to find out more about you, maybe they want to send you their decks, who knows? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, for sure. So I would uh, I would say I'm most active on Twitter and I'm at Brianne Kimmel. Amazing. Great. Yes. Thanks so much for your time, Brianne. Awesome. Thanks. Have a good day. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.